All right, 1 Samuel chapter 18, with verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to begin, and then we're going to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 20 as we look at the very famous story, the friendship of Jonathan and David. We're actually going to take two weeks to look at this friendship since there's so much here. Picking up in verse eight, or chapter 18 and reading through verse 4. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And gave him his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Then turn over to chapter 20. Now, where we'll pick up at verse 1. We'll read through verse 23 and then drop down to the end of the passage and read verse 41 and 42. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah. At this point, uh, David is now, uh, Saul has very much turned against David. He has already tried to kill David on multiple occasions. Uh, He has now chased David to a city uh, called Naoth, where in chapter 19, there's something rather comical, where he keeps sending men after David, and they end up prophesying. And then the worst is when Saul shows up to Naoth, and and before Samuel and David, he begins prophesying, not in some, it's essentially this word for babbling, actually. And it actually shows that Saul gets naked. So this is the scene. God has given, uh, God has given David an escape plan by having Saul go essentially mad in his babbling, running around Naoth in the nude. And in the, while Saul is in the nude, David makes his escape. Listen, the Bible's just funny sometimes. And that's where we pick up in verse 20. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run into Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards you, David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. 
And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Then drop down to verse 41 as we end the passage there. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face. So this is after Jonathan has shot the arrows. And Saul is very angry, and so David's going to have to flee. And David fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. Well, the relationship between David and Jonathan is famous as essentially being the most famous friendship in all the Bible. Uh, I want to spend two weeks on this text because I think it is so important because I think we have lost the ability to have good friendships in our culture. We have made friend a verb. You, all you do now is you friend people on social media. That is the depth of our friendship. Social media provides us with the illusion of having scores and scores of friends, but in the reality, all the statistics would show that we don't actually have friendships because we don't even know what it's supposed to look like. Today we pay therapists or hairdressers to do what friends used to be able to do for us, to be engaged and sympathetic listeners. But the Bible says that in friendship, the friendship that we ought to be looking for is the friend who sticks closer to you than a brother. We need relationships that bring security. We need relationships that are deep and affectionate We need relationships that are constant no matter what in a world that is ever-changing. And the word that is key here that secures this kind of relationship, this kind of friendship, is the word covenant. Covenant. Covenant is the key word both in chapter 18 and 19 and 20. It is covenant. Covenant is the word for the ultimate, lifelong, tenacious blood bond between two parties. In our world, we don't have covenant relationships. We have contractual relationships. We have consumer-type relationships. You know what a consumer relationship is? It does involve some sort of a covenant and 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 that there is a written contract in some way, shape, or form. But even the way we do a relational friendships, our relational contracts, so, so to speak, our social contracts are as consumers. You know, when you consume something, so for example, if you have an internet cable company and they charge you $60 a month for your cable and your cable is good and you're happy with that price, that's great until they raise the price or the cable goes bad. Then what do you do? 
I'm out of here. I'm finding another contractual partner. The way we do relationships today is very much that same way. It's a relationship of convenience. If we live in a, if we're in a particular stage of life together, if we, if you're good to me in this, but if you offend me, then I'm done. If this relationship doesn't work for me, then I'm out. It's the way we do marriage. That marriage, marriage is great as long as it's meeting my needs, but the moment that it stops meeting my needs in the way that I desire it to be met, then I'm out of here. I'm going to go find a new version. It is contractual. It's consumer. And in fact, this is the way we treat the church as well. We are almost trained by the way in which we do relationships. We can see it in our consumer mentality and the way we hop from church to church. Even the most quote-unquote fundamentalist of us like to hop from church to church because we can't ever find the perfect church that perfectly fits our nuanced little needs. And so we move from place to place to place. For some of us, we never put roots down, never make deep friendships, never have deep relationships. A covenant is a commitment to extend faithful, steadfast love and loyalty come hell or high water, and good or bad. I'm going to do a wedding this afternoon in which there's going to be vows. And that is what you're going to vow. Marriage is the greatest picture of a covenant relationship we have on earth. It is dependable and devoted. It is trustworthy. And it says, for better or for worse, I'm here. And sickness and in health, I'm here. It is not a contract that ends when your needs are not met. A covenant relationship remains steady and constant in spite of the circumstances. When things go bad, you stick to it. You dive in. This is, this is where we need covenants. And there's lots of covenants in this room because there's lots of marriages. There's a covenant between us as members of a church. There's covenants, even in functional covenants, between friends and this morning, what I want to look at is the covenant between David and Jonathan. We're going to take two weeks to look at this because I simply didn't have the time to do all the application I wanted to do in coming out of this. And so this morning is going to be a little bit cold in the sense that we're going to put before you what a covenant relationship ought to look like. And then next week, we're going to try to apply it to call you into friendships and relationships and how the gospel enables you to do that. So I have five points with you this for you this morning that we can glean about what covenant relationships are, what they ought to look like from David and Jonathan. Covenant relationships are, first and foremost, initiated by commonality. Covenant friendships, covenant relationships are initiated by commonality. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, it comes right, right out of the gate. It says, the soul of Jonathan and David were knit together. Now, that, is, that is, seems unbelievable. It's, they have just met in chapter 18. They're, how can their souls be knit together? What is the string that is tying them together? Well, C.S. Lewis says that a friendship is born at the moment when someone says, you too. You too. When you look at someone and say, oh my goodness, you value that also. You're into that as well. This is the purpose of your life too. This is the hobby that you love as well. That relationships begin with a commonality, with a mutuality. And what was it for David and Jonathan? What was their you too moments? What do they connect around? Well, let's see if I can give you a description. I think it doesn't tell us specifically necessarily. But I think we can look at the text and the story of these two men's lives. In chapter 14 of 1 Samuel 
we see this account from Jonathan's life where Jonathan and his armor bearer are peering off at a hill, a hill that is not too far away, in which they see a Philistine uh, redoubt, a Philistine of, uh, uh, what do you want to call it? A, a Philistine outpost. And there's a number of Philistine soldiers there, but it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Jonathan says, hey, let's go fight them. And the armor bearer is like, are you sure? There's just two of us. And Jonathan says this, yes, for the battle is the Lord's. Who does that sound like? 1 Samuel chapter 17, just a few chapters later, David goes out and he fights this guy, Goliath, and he says, I will be victorious. Why? For the battle is the Lord's. And it is when Jonathan sees David's courage, David's trust in the Lord, what do we have? We have a commonality of two great warriors who find their strength for their warrior ability, not in their own abilities, but in the Lord himself. And it knits their souls together. They have a commonality. When Jonathan sees David's courage before Goliath, he looks at him and he says, this is a brother in arms. He looks at him and says, you too? Everybody else in Israel is melting. My father is melting. Everybody is weaklings here. But you're courageous. You're courageous. We're both looking to the Lord to win the battle for us. In 1 Samuel, it goes on in a more generic way. We see that this is, this is said, stated throughout the relationships. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42, Jonathan says this to David, that the Lord shall be between me and you forever. What that means is not that God is keeping them apart from each other, but it means that God is the connecting bond, that the Lord is the connecting bond between these two brothers. And so it is for Christians. The Christians together with Christ as their bond, that we have a common passion. We have a commonality. We have a common purpose and a common mission. Jesus, and it's interesting, Jesus can bring two people who are otherwise don't have much more else in common together in friendship because of this deep union around Jesus Christ, around serving the Lord and his purposes. Did you know this? If you actually do the math of the various, uh, if you kind of do some, some, some math gymnastics throughout 1 Samuel, that most commentators believe that, that Jonathan is over 30 years older than David. We, you know, in the children's Sunday school material, it's two young guys running around, isn't it? That's not how it is. It's a 20-year-old and a 50-year-old running around. What we have in this friendship is not just two guys who have companionship and that they have some, some vague or general or small commonality. They have something deep that overcomes generational divides. They're, they're connected around their love for the Lord. Or they're bonded around the Lord himself. You need to have commonality. In fact, this is really important for, right, the great covenant that you make in marriage. There's a reason why Jesus gives the command, do not be unequally yoked. Why you need to marry a believer and someone of similar state as you spiritually. Because think about all the repercussions. If the great horizon of your life, if the great purpose of your life is to serve this Lord, it's going to affect how you spend your money. It's going to affect the house that you buy. It's going to affect how you raise your children. It's going to affect how many children that you have. It's going to affect where you go on vacation. It's going to affect everything in your life. And therefore, if you don't have mutuality here, then you shouldn't be connected. Listen, I'll marry two non-believers. I'll marry two believers, but I will not marry a believer and an unbeliever. Because there is no common mutuality. There is no common purpose there. I want you to see that before a covenant is made, there is commonality in purpose. There is a commonality in affection. Do you see verse 3? 
This is also another important thing about marriage and other covenant relationships. You should actually have a sense that you love this person. Previous, why does Jonathan enter into covenant with David? Verse 3 of chapter 18, then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. That commonality had been worked out into a common affection, a common love for one another that led them to say, we should enter into a bond together, a deeper relationship with one another. By the way, this actually goes against the whole idea of arranged marriages, this isn't a big deal in this culture because we don't have it, but if I was speaking in a culture that had arranged marriages, this would be a place I would go to to say, hey, maybe, maybe this isn't the best idea all the time. That there actually should be some signs of affection and love and mutuality before you enter into a marriage, into a covenant agreement. In the same way, you actually ought to love a church. That you should do some homework before you enter into a deep covenantal relationship with somebody else. That takes time. It takes time for the affection to build up for one another around that common mutuality that you have, that common purpose in Christ Jesus. So the first thing you need for covenant relationship, it's initiated by our commonality. Second, though, it is bound by intentional, intentional commitments. Covenant relationships are bound by intentional commitments. This is perhaps the most countercultural of all the points I'm going to make this morning. Listen, we tend to think of ourselves as being bound by our commonality at stages of life. And that is the beginning, but it cannot end there. It has to move beyond that. You see, many of us, we have companions, but not deep covenantal relationships. Friendships takes intentionality and commitment. Companions are those who live, have similar life circumstances of you. You're in a mom's group or fantasy football or life seasons or common hobbies and passions. Companionship is good. Don't hear me wrong about, how, about companionship. Companionship is a great thing, but it is not a covenantal relationship. There is a step deeper that we need to go. The difference is intentionality and formal commitment. In a covenantal relationship, we actually say, I am intentionally moving towards you. And I am going to formally commit myself to you. Chapter 18, verse 3, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. A covenant in in itself is an intentional commitment. It is formally saying, I am for you and for you, you are for me. It is deliberate. Now, you might look at this and go, oh my goodness. I just want to talk about from friendships. I just want some people to hang out with on a Friday night. That's not what we're talking about here. What I want you to see here is that we are raising the bar for friendship, that we're raising the bar for covenantal relationships, that there's something immensely deliberate about that. A covenant is a formal commitment that bonds you together. This, is, this normally takes time before you're willing to make such a commitment. There's a reason why you probably only have one or two really close friends, in large part because you, only, you can only make this kind of commitment with a few folks. Why formalize it, though? Why should we formalize our friendships and our relationships? Why should we, if you're, if you're a young couple in, who's, who's in love with one another and you're like, man, we could move in together and we could do life together with all that, without all that formalizing. Although we don't need a piece of paper to show our love. When actuality, I would say it is necessary because when you love someone as a friend, you want to give them security and confidence for their sake. 
Covenants give us security and confidence in the midst of relationships. When things are going badly, and all the, particularly in chapter 20, when David's life is at stake, when he is fearing for his life, he goes to Jonathan, the very person who might kill him, might turn him over to Saul. But why does he feel secure in this relationship? Why? Because of the promise. Because of the covenant commitments. It is crucial to remember that Jonathan's covenant in and of itself was an expression of love initiated by love. That covenants are, love precedes the covenant, but love leads to making a covenant, saying, I want to bond myself to you. If you were to say, if you're a young couple and you say, I don't want to be married to that person, we don't need a piece of paper, then what you're saying is, man, it's great, I want to enjoy all this, but I'm not, I don't love you enough to make you secure in this relationship. I don't love you enough to make you a lifelong promise. I don't love you enough to bind myself to you. That's actually put my, putting myself out there in some way, shape, or form. Jonathan has made a covenant with David. He wants to be deliberate in his relationship with David because he cares about David. When you love someone, you want to devote yourself to them. And you want them to feel secure in their relationship with you. And so here's the call. Here's the call. Make deep and formal commitments in your life for your deepest relationships. You know, I might ask the question, are you actually saying that we need to be deliberate and intentional about our friendships today in the same way that David and Jonathan were? And I would say, I think yes. I think yes. If you're not this intentional, then you're only ever going to have companionship. And that's lovely. But you're never going to have that person who you can go to for anything. I want to give you three examples of places in which I think you should actually have this kind of formalized relationship. The first is Church is a church membership. You know, really quickly, I want to I wanna say something very briefly because it's some bad biblical interpretation that people get into. People like to look to turn to Matthew chapter 5 where it says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. It talks about how you don't make oaths. And what it means to not make oaths is that you don't do something like, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. What Jesus is saying is you don't need all that hocus pocus let your yes be yes. Be a man of integrity. You don't need to be adding on anything to, to so, so, so go beyond your yes and your no. You don't need to be looking to something else to secure your covenant other than your yes and your no. We can't look at Matthew chapter 5 and say we shouldn't actually make membership vows. We shouldn't actually sign contracts because well, I've actually had this conversation with multiple people who said, I don't believe in church membership because I believe my yes should be yes and my no should be no. Well, that is simply, that is biblically, uh, biblical interpretation immaturity. That is an inability to look at the whole of what Scripture says about, about oaths and about vows and about yes and no and about making promises. We see promises throughout the Scriptures. Then what you do in a church relationship and why you should take uh, looking at a church very seriously is you should take your vows there very seriously. You know, every couple of weeks, I've done it twice in the last month, I stand up before you and I have some people who are here and they're gonna give vows before you, membership vows. And our book of church order actually says this, that there's this preface that I can read or not read. And I, I, in the past, I haven't chosen to read it, but maybe I will begin. It says this, that you here, I'm supposed to read this to the people who are about to vow themselves to church membership. You here, present to make a public profession of faith, are to assent to the following declarations and promises by which you enter into a solemn covenant with God and his church. 
A church membership, we are saying when someone joins the church that he or she is in covenant with the members of this church. That if you want to say that you are a part of this church, you say, I want to join those people. I'm going to make vows to those people. I'm going to make promises to those people. And this, and when you make that vow, you should keep it. I think actually we can learn a lot. You, want, you know, one of the things you should be looking for in a man or a woman as to whether you should marry them is whether they're a member of a church. Have they been willing to commit themselves to the body of Jesus Christ, to the bride of Jesus and to Jesus himself in a formal way? Because if they're not willing to do that, then you should not commit yourself to them. It is the church is the great covenant training ground for marriage. And what I want you to see here is that if you're part of a church and you've joined, what that means is you don't leave when things get tough. You don't leave when things get hard. If I leave tomorrow and you're struggling and the church is, is, is having difficulty, you don't leave because you're like, well, the pastor left, we're out of here. No, 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 no. That's when you stick in because you made a covenant, because you made a promise and you said, we are family together in this. We will stick together. The second place where you need to make formal covenants like this is marriage. Is marriage. I've already used this as an illustration, so I think it should be obvious. Till death do us part is covenantal language. Whatever comes our way, I'm staying in. You should make this kind of relationship, relational vow, this kind of depth. And lastly, lastly, you, I think you actually should make this kind of vow. Seek a covenantal relationship in your deepest rel- friendships. Your deepest friendships. You might ask, are you saying I should be as deliberate about my same-sex friendships as I am about a spouse? And my answer is yes. For a few people, I think yes. We have lost, we have lost the beauty of covenant. You know who got covenant? Well, not really. But you know, in the old days, if you read about these various stories in history, that there are a few people constantly making covenants with one another and deep relationships. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn knew how to make a covenant, and we don't know how to make covenants today. We have relationships that are this deep. They go about this wide because we're so transient and we're so fearful of actually getting into deep relationships. But I would, I would say this, that you should find a friend or two that you have done your evaluation, that you have commonality with one another, in which there is deep affection, and you have done the hard work, could dare I might even say friendship dating, and you would even say, I'm going to commit myself to you. We see it in the Bible. Listen, it's not prescriptive, it's not a command, but I'm saying it's a good description. And that you, could have, you should and could have this kind of relationship. In fact, this is what you do. We functionally always test our friends. We're always feeling people out. Oh, am I going to keep you around? Am I not going to keep you around? But if you find that friend, and let me tell you, they are rare, are they not? When you find that friend where you go, my goodness, we have commonality, we have a deep love and affection for one another, and I want to bond myself to this person, I think there's deep value in that. We see that actually in the community groups that I lead, I didn't do it this last year, and I think there was actually some, some, some weakness to it. In the past, what I've done with my, with my discipleship groups is I have all my guys sit down. They have a covenant that they have to, to fill out, and they have to sign the covenant. It's an agreement. I will hold you accountable. I will pursue mission. I will pursue Jesus Christ in relationship with him. I will be quiet. I will not share about what goes on in, in this relationship with other people. I will support you. That's the kind of covenants we should make. I would actually encourage you to do this. You know what? It would be so good if you're married. It would be so good 
for your marriage if you did this. Your spouse would probably look at you and go, I'm not the only one that has to bear his garbage. He's got a friend that can do that as well. And spouse, you should want that. You should want someone else. You give them permission. In my premarital counseling, I tell everybody, I tell each of them when I walk through it, I say, we get to the section on relationships and boundaries. I say, you should give each other to have permission with one or two friends where they can share anything about your marriage because they need a place because you're difficult to live with. And they need somebody else who's going to build them up so that you can, they can do marriage well. That kind of covenantal relationship even outside of your marriage. And I would also say this, if you're single, if you're single, you should desire this kind of relationship. A same-sex relationship, yes. Let's not all get homophobic. I actually think this is incredible. You know, that's actually one of the things that is accused, that this is such a deeply affectionate and intimate relationship between David and Jonathan. Many liberal scholars will look at this and go, oh, man, I don't know. I'm not sure what's going on here. Saul disrobed. That's not good. That's not what's going on. There's covenant being made here. There's depths of relationship being made here. So much of the longing for companionship and deep friendship and deep relationship could actually be met in your singleness in this kind of relationship. I would encourage you to pursue it. Third, third point, the covenantal relationships are expressed in deep vulnerability. Deep vulnerability. I want to see it in two different ways here. First, we see David's physical vulnerability. Why would David dare run to Saul's son when Saul is under attack, when Saul is attacking David? Who should Jonathan be aligned with? He should be aligned with Saul. Jonathan, everything, Jonathan is all to gain if David dies. Jonathan gets the crown if David dies. Only, but jo, jo, David goes to Jonathan. Why? Because he had the promise with David. He had the promise with Jonathan. You see, when you have a covenant relationship with one another, it actually frees you and creates the safe playing ground where you can begin to be vulnerable with one another. And not just physically, in the sense that, that Jonathan could, could physically injure David, but the way in which we most often need to have it today is the fact that David is emotionally vulnerable. When he finds out that he is going to have to flee from Israel and leave Jonathan, what does it say that David does at the end of chapter 20? He bows down, he throws himself at the ground, and he weeps. They weep before one another. Look at the emotional honesty of two men. They're crying. It says they're kissing one another. They're hugging one another. This is emotional vulnerability. Now, most of us look at this and we go, yeah, no thank you. No thank you. But my goodness, if you, some of us long, long for this kind of vulnerability. Long to weep from somebody else. Long to actually say, man, I just need to simply go to some, I need to go someplace, and I need to see a place to cry. You actually had somebody where that was safe to do that. The, the, the covenantal relationship makes it safe to be that kind of vulnerable with one another. And understand this, this is not, this is not weak to be emotionally vulnerable in this way. Remember who David and Jonathan are. Jonathan takes out an outpost of Philistines with his armor bearer, just themselves. David takes out Goliath and cuts off his head. David does some serious ancient Near Eastern smack talk. These are not weaklings. These are manly men. They have hair on their chest, and yet they're willing to weep and be vulnerable. And listen, this is incredibly important. If you have this kind of friendship, this is amazing for your spiritual life because when you have this kind of friend where you can share this depth of emotion and, and weakness, then they can actually be there to help you. Because you know what? As a person, you have blind spots. When you have a friendship who is safe, 
you can then say, help me see me. Because I walk into this relationship and you can actually see me in a way that I don't, you see my warts that I don't ever actually see. My goodness. You know what, there's, there's nothing that's more, I'm going to put an image in your mind that's, that might make some of you cringe. <laughs> I remember being on a beach with a partner in mission overseas, and we were on a beach, we were on a vacation for a couple days, and this guy had a really hairy, moldy back. And he asked me to put sunscreen on him. <laughs> and I discovered things about him that I didn't want to discover. But that's actually the type of relationship you need. Someone who actually is safe enough to be that vulnerable emotionally, that weak, that you can tell them about your sins in the deepest, darkest parts of your life. And they, and they can actually know you so well that they can say that's a weakness in you. And it's okay because you know they're not going anywhere. They're not running because you're weak and because you're hairy and because you're moly spiritually. They ain't running from you. They're to help you. The faithful are the wounds of a friend. And the only time in which you'd be willing to be wounded, to get that kind of vulnerable, to let somebody, a friend cut on you is if you're in the process of covenant with them. Fourth, fourth, covenant relationships are demonstrated in sacrificial loyalty. Covenant relationships are demonstrated in, by sacrificial loyalty. I want to understand this, and we pointed this out briefly last week. One simply does not do what Jonathan does. You just don't do it. You didn't hand over your place to a rival. In chapter 18, verse 4, it says that Jonathan takes off his robe and he takes off his sword and he gives it to David. What is he saying? He's saying, I am laying myself down for for you. This is supposed to be my kingdom. And yet I'm going to take off the royal robes and give it to you. That's loyalty. That I'm willing to live for your kingdom. That's loyalty. That's what a covenant relationship is. And a marriage, you know what a marriage is? A marriage is waking up every single day and saying, I will not live for my rights. I will not live for my pleasures. I will not live for my life. I will live for you. That's what a covenant relationship does. That's the loyalty that we see. Both David and Jonathan give it to one another. Remember when Jonathan depends uh, David, is in front of David, in front of Saul, and, and, and we see the costliness of this for Jonathan because he's going to defend David before his dad. And his loyalty is actually going to defend David. And what happens? Just as David has had spears thrown at him by Saul, so Saul will throw a spear at Jonathan. In covenant, you say, I am so loyal to you that I, what you get, I get. When you're in the pit, I'm in the pit. When you're down there, when your life isn't threatened, when you're worn down and you're wounded, I will enter into your woundedness. I will bear your burdens. Covenant love is loyal. It defends. It provides a refuge and a safe place. And it does so even in the face of great personal cost. Great personal cost. That you're that loyal to one another. It costs Jonathan to be friends with David. It costs him his status. It costs him his relationship with his father. It costs him the very kingdom. Jonathan, his own life is threatened because of his connection to David. He says, I'm willing to lay my life down for you. Now that's friendship, right? John 15. How do we know what a friend is? How do we know what love is? Greater love has done than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Covenants, 
Covenant becomes the vehicle for uncommon faithfulness and sacrifice. In covenant love, you are bound together for better and for worse. Now listen, you may never actually be like a soldier in the field where you have a covenant to the, to the brothers in arms around you. But you may actually have some other places where you have to be, show great fidelity at great personal cost. At great personal cost. I'll tell you the story about Robert McGilkin. I wish I could show you the video. You should go look it up. Robert McGilkin was the uh, president of Columbia um, Seminary for a number of years. He had risen to the top of his profession within the academic and Christian world. He was the president of the school. And he and his wife were in fairly mid-age, late middle age, when his his wife began acting strangely. And it came within, very rapidly, within a few short months, it became rather apparent that she had early onset Alzheimer's. And so in the midst of this, he began to try to continue to care for her and continue to be the president of the school. And eventually it became clear that he could not carry on both roles. And he said this in his resignation speech. If you should go look it up on on YouTube, it is absolutely beautiful to hear it in his own voice. But he said this, I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions. But one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one. Because of the circumstances have dictated it. His wife's name is Muriel. He said this, Muriel now, in the last couple months, seems to be almost happy when with me. And almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped. She becomes fearful and enters into sheer terror. And when she can't be with me, there's anger. She's in great distress. But when I am with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word. It is only fair, though. She has, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion to make my life possible. And now it is my turn. For if I were to care for her for four years, I would still not be out of her debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about, but she is a delight, and it's the great honor of my life to care for such a wonderful person. He gave up the height of his profession. He went home. He wouldn't put his wife in care. He wouldn't put her in a nursing home. He says, I want to be with her day in and day out, because when you have this kind of covenant, you're willing to pay the cost to be faithful, to be faithful. Last, lastly, covenant relationships. Lastly, covenant relationships are patterned after God's covenantal relationships. First Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 and 15, Jonathan says something interesting. He says, if I'm still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. What is Jonathan referred to? What is that word steadfast love? That word steadfast love and covenant go together in the Hebrew. Behind that word is this word hesed. It's the word steadfast love. It can also be translated simply covenantal love. This is not peace, love, and groovy feelings. This is covenantal love. This is tenacious, loyal, dependable love. This is a love that pursues and that will not be scared off. That's what Jonathan is asking from David. And what is it he is longing him to show him? Is it just some earthly example? 
Show me love like that couple over there, like those friends over there. No, what is the pattern of the love that Jonathan longs to have from David? The steadfast love of the Lord. Here's the point, and this is critical. Jonathan and David's covenant with one another is merely a shadow patterned after the covenantal love of God for us. Their relationship is merely a shadow patterned after God's covenantal love for us. The text is extending to us a picture of human relationships, but only as a shadow of a much greater relationship, a much greater covenant, a covenant that was made between God and his people. And what we find in the covenant with God is there is one who is willing to bind himself in covenant with us. That's crazy. With us, there is one who is willing to offer hesed love to us, covenantal love. The covenant, the hesed love of God ultimately flows from the very nature of who God is. You want to know what the Bible is about? In one word, the Bible is about God's covenantal love for us. It's there from page one to the end of the book in which God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve, with all of mankind. This is the story of the Bible. That God has come to us and said, oh my, be in relationship with me. And if you do this, then I'll do this. If you keep your relationship, you're part of the covenant and the bargain, then you'll get these blessings. But if you don't, there are cursings. And did we keep our end of the bargain? By no means. And so God came to another man, Noah, and he made a covenant with him. And he didn't keep the means. And then he went to Abraham, and Abraham broke covenant. And then he made a covenant with the people of Israel, and he said, you are my people. We read it today in Jeremiah 31, where it's called the Old Covenant, where God says, listen, I am the steadfast gods. I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. I'm going to be faithful to this covenant. Now, understand this. In the covenant of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there are blessings and cursings. If we keep our end of the bargain, there's great blessings. There's life eternal. There's an inheritance with God for all of eternity. But if we break covenants, then there's cursings. There's cursings. And yet God, in his longing to keep covenant with us because he loved you so much that even though you were the worst marital partner the world has ever had to offer, even though you were a terrible covenantal partner, he said, I so even though they have broken covenant, I must find a way to stay within covenant in relationship with these people. And so what does he do? He sends his son. And this is the story of the Bible where Jesus has to close out the old covenant and pay for the cursings of the old covenant. And not only that, but then fulfill all that is required for you and I to be into the new covenant with God the Father. Do you understand this? That there was cursings that you and I deserved because of that old covenant. That we deserve to die. We deserve God's wrath. And yet Jesus said, God said, I am so in love with you. I will keep my steadfastness in such a way that I'll send my son to pay for you. The things that, your cursings that you deserve. I am keeping covenant. I am keeping faithfulness to what I said is going to happen in this relationship. There's going to be wrath poured out. And yet I'm going to pour it out on him. And not only that, because of his righteousness, he's going to be usher into you with you a new covenant in which there is going to be nothing required of you except that you're connected to him. He is your new federal head. It's a relationship between God and Jesus. And with Jesus, we are all connected in there so that you now are in covenant relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. Our Jonathan is Jesus. 
We looked at this last week, that Jesus comes to play both the David and the Jonathan roles. In Jesus, we have one who became imminently vulnerable, don't we? He became killable, physically vulnerable. Not, 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 not because simply to be physically vulnerable, but why? To keep covenant with us. He said, I will become vulnerable to provide you a safe place. In Jesus, we have a safe place. In Jesus, we have a covenant partner who is loyal unto death. In Jesus, we have a covenant partner who gives up his throne. It is at great cost he brings us in. You want a friend? You want a friend who sticketh closer than a brother? My goodness, how about a brother who sticketh as close as a friend? That's who Jesus is. Our covenant brother, our covenant friend, he is faithful to sinners. In, even when we are not faithful covenant partners, Jesus is you know, in the garden, Jesus is standing before, laying, crying out before the Father, and the Father says to the Son of sorts, the Father says, you don't have to take this cup, but if you don't take this cup, they get hell. But if you take this cup, if you take this cup, then they get life with me for all of eternity. And Jesus says, give me hell. I will go to hell so that I may be a covenant keeper, so that I may bring them into covenant with you. John 15, verse 15 says these amazing words. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. The friendship of, with God. Do you understand? If we get beyond, see, part of the problem while we hear that, and it's so, we think of Jesus as our Facebook friend. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus and I, we like to, we like to do stuff together. We like to go to the mall together. No, no, no. Do you understand? We're talking about friendship as a covenantal friendship. The depths of what we've been talking about here. This is a much deeper relationship. And he says, you are my friend. You are my friend. You see the pattern of God's covenantal friendship to us. And more than that, I have to ask you this. Have you experienced it? Are you in it? See, in the gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation into a new covenant in which all you have to do is say, I trust in my covenant head. That's all you have to do. There is no righteousness for you to have to carry out in order to be in covenant with this God. You have a covenant with this God, you will never perish. When you fall into the arms of the abyss, you fall into the loving kindness of God's arms himself. When you seek Hesed, you find yourself in the arms of Jesus. David knew Hesed love. Psalm 63, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Is better than life. Do you have a friendship like this? Have you experienced God's covenant love? Have you experienced it as better than life? I hope you have. You have a friend in Jesus. Let's pray and we go to the table. Let's go to the table. Those who are serving can come forward. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we, um, we've been really crummy friends. We thought that um, covenant relationship with you was all, all that was involved was um, our end of the deal was, hey, show up to church a little bit and have you ask if you want to go to the mall, if you ask if you want to give us some money. Lord, we've been so unfaithful to you. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, though. We thank you that in time and time again in the, the course of history that when your people, people that you have bound yourself to have run away from you, have, have broken covenant with you that you've run after them. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we need this kind of friendship. Gracious God, we are a lonely people. We need someone who we can be cry in front of. Lord, there are some to this morning who as they take communion need to weep. 
They need to lay before you their burdens. There are some before you this morning who need to come to you and say, will you pay the cost? And they get to look at the cost that you've been willing to pay and say, yes, Lord, I I trust. I trust that you're going to do everything to make sure that this relationship is intact. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would draw us to yourself. And Lord, we come to celebrate. We come to celebrate what it took to bring us back into covenant relationship with you. Lord, it took your son dying and shedding his blood to pay for our transgressions against the old covenant so that we may be brought into a new relationship, so that we may, in a sense, have a renewed marriage vows with you, a new relationship where all is forgiven, where you have taken care of both sides of the requirements, where you are faithful and you are kind and you are good, and we merely need to throw ourselves at your feet. Oh, gracious God, we come to remember that this morning. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you have shown, saying, I want to be with you. And in that, you've invited us to a table to eat with us, your friends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.